Here's another study from Calvary Chapel, Rochester. So I don't know how many of you guys like to hike. Um, I grew up loving to hike and uh, would uh, quite frequently go hiking in the foothills in California and in the forests and uh, pretty much anywhere I got an opportunity to go hiking. And um, one of the things that, you know, I really like about hiking, sometimes you take a path and it's kind of a winding path or, you know, you, you're, you don't really, you know, kind of a struggle, uh, maybe, maybe it's uphill. And uh, it's just a struggle to get up there and stuff. But when you get to a destination, it's like, man, everything was worth it. It's like, what a blessing. Uh, the view is just spectacular. And this morning, we're going to be on a path as well. As I've studied Numbers 5 and 6, what came out to me, what I think is applicable for us is that Numbers 5 and 6, I think, describes, at least for you and I, a path to blessing. And so we're going to be looking at the path to blessing uh, this morning in Numbers 5 and Numbers 6. So let's go ahead and start with chapter 5, verse 1. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they put out of the camp every leper, everyone who has a disease, excuse me, everyone who has a discharge, and whoever becomes defiled by a corpse. You shall, you shall put out both male and female. You shall put them outside the camp that they may not defile their camps in the midst of which I dwell. And the children of Israel did so and put them outside the camp as the Lord spoke to Moses. So the children of Israel did. So someone here in the camp with leprosy or they had some kind of a bodily discharge or they had uh, defiled their body, uh, defiled themselves by maybe touching a dead animal or, or a dead person or whatever, um, it didn't mean that they were in sin. Um, they were ceremonially unclean. That's what this passage is speaking about, being ceremonially unclean. But you see, God was trying to teach the children of Israel that he is a holy God in their midst and that they were to be holy as he is holy. The purpose for putting people outside the camp was that the entire camp, to prevent the entire camp from becoming ceremonially unclean. Again, like I say, it's these people described here, they weren't in sin. However, I think I see a picture here for you and us um, that does describe sin, the sin that defiles you and I. Because you and I, we are to be separate from those things which make us unclean. Spiritual uncleanness, what am I talking about? I'm talking about unaddressed and unconfessed sin in us. And you know, eventually that will affect others around us. In fact, that's why the writer of Hebrews tells his audience in Hebrews 12, 14, and 15, he says, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. This is why also the Apostle Paul told the church in Corinth, they weren't dealing, there was a, there was a person in their, in their fellowship that was in sin. And it was uh, unconfessed, open sin, everybody knew what he was doing, and the church wasn't addressing it at all with them. And so Paul wrote a letter to the Corinthian church, 
And in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, verses 5 and 6, he tells them what to do with this person that has unconfessed and he's unrepentant in his sin. It says, deliver such a one to Satan for the destruction of the flesh that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus. And then he speaks to the church. He says, your glorifying is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Everyone's going to be affected by this. Later on in that same chapter, verses 9 through 13, he says this, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people, yet I certainly did not mean this with the sexually immoral people of the world or with the covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler, or a drunkard, or an extortioner, not even to eat with such a person. For what have I to do with judging all those also who are outside? Do you not judge those who are inside? But those who are outside, God judges. Therefore, put away from yourselves the evil person. Now you might be thinking, why does God want you and I to, conf uh, to confront an unrepented sinner uh, sinning brother or sinner in the, uh, sister in the Lord. Excuse me, I'm getting kind of tongue-tied. <laughs> I'm really getting tongue-tied. <laughs> what's the big deal? Why can't we just let everybody do, you know, just live their lives, right? Well, not only because their sin can infect others, and that was what God was trying to paint a picture, I think, for us, but ultimately that the sinner would understand that sin causes a separation. It causes a separation from a holy God, but it also causes separation from one another. And the whole purpose behind this is to bring a person to the point of acknowledging their sin. It's the first step on that path to blessing. If you guys want to show that one screen uh, picture, you know, admit that you're a sinner. That's the first step. We talk about that in the gospel when we're sharing the gospel with someone. Paul wrote this in Romans 3.10, there is none righteous, no, not one. And then the, uh, verse 23 of chapter 3 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And so the first path or the first step in that path to blessing is to acknowledge, realize that you're a sinner. Well, what does a person do when they understand that they're in sin? Well, let's continue on here in Numbers 5, uh, verses 5. Then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel. When a man or a woman commits any sin that men commit in unfaithfulness against the Lord and that person is guilty, then he shall confess the sin which he has committed. He shall make restitution for his trespass in full plus one fifth of it and give it to the one he has wronged. But if the man has no relative to whom restitution may be made for the wrong, the restitution for the wrong must go to the Lord for the priest, in addition to the ram of the atonement which, with which atonement is made for him. Every offering of all the holy things of the children of Israel which they bring to the priest shall be his, and every man's holy thing shall be his. Whatever any man gives the priest shall be his. So what's the next step? Well, the next step, once you realize you're a sinner is to acknowledge and confess that sin. Now, this passage that I just wrote to you, it's speaking specifically against sinning against another person, against man. But, you know, whether you sin against a man or you're, it's still sin against the Lord, no matter what. That's why 
in this passage of scripture, they still had to offer the ram of the atonement offering because they had sinned against God. But here is also a sin against man. And confession must be made to the people that we've sinned against. You know, some people have the, uh, the mistaken idea. It's like, you know, no matter what I do, as long as I confess my sin to God, I'm okay. God forgives me. And you know, that's true. The Bible says if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. It's so true. But if we've sinned against another brother, or not even necessarily another Christian, another person, we have to go to them and confess it to them and acknowledge that we've sinned against them and ask for their forgiveness. That's, a very, that's kind of a difficult thing to do, but we need to do that. And then on top of that, if it's possible to make restitution for what we've done. What is restitution? Restitution is the practice of making some injury or offense right with another person. Now, in this passage of Scripture, and there's many other passages in the Old Testament, there are requirements in the Old Testament uh, in the law for making restitution. But for you and I, we're not under the law, right? We are under the spirit of grace. We're under the law of love. Well, how much more, if we love one another, we should make restitution to those that we've sinned against? There's a good example of that in the New Testament. The example of uh, Zacchaeus. It's recorded in Luke 19, verse 8. Zacchaeus was a tax collector, and he had swindled. He had, he had, he had taken money uh, from people. Uh, you know, he had cheated people, basically, and got wealthy off of that. But then he met Jesus, and Jesus transformed his life. In Luke 19, verse 8, it says, Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Oh, look, Lord, <laughs> I give half of my goods to the poor. And if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. God hadn't told him to do that. He willingly did that. In verses 9 of Luke 19, Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he also is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. We cannot repay God for what we've done. We can't repay him. But we can repay others when we've sinned against others. We can repay them for what we have done. And restitution is the way that we do it. Now, restitution is not only meant for the offended, you know, to make things right with them, but it's also for the offender. Because uh, excuse me, restitution leads to restoration. It mends that relationship that was broken. And that's the next step on the path to blessing in your life is to confess your sins and to make restitution if that's possible. And now we get to another passage of scripture here in verse 11 through 31. And uh, we'll just read it and then we'll, we'll dig into it and we'll see what, what step is this. Verse 11. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, If any man's wife goes astray and behaves unfaithfully toward him, and a man lies with her carnally, and it is hidden from the eyes of her husband, and it is concealed that she has defiled herself, and there was no witness against her, nor was she caught, if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife who has defiled herself, or if the spirit of jealousy comes upon him and he becomes jealous of his wife, although she has not defiled herself, 
Then the man shall bring his wife to the priest. He shall bring the offering required for her, one-tenth of an ephah of barley meal. He shall pour no oil on it and put no frankincense on it, because it is a grain offering of jealousy, an offering for remembering, for bringing iniquity to remembrance. And the priest shall bring her near and set her before the Lord. The priest shall take holy water in an earthen vessel and take some of the dust that is on the floor of the tabernacle and put it into the water. Then the priest shall stand the woman before the Lord, uncover the woman's head and put the offering for remembering in her hands, which is the grain offering of jealousy. And the priest shall have in his hand the bitter water that brings a curse. And the priest shall put her under oath and say to the woman, If no man has lain with you, and if you have not gone astray to uncleanness while under your husband's authority, be free from this bitter water that brings a curse. But if you have gone astray while under your husband's authority, and if you have defiled yourself, and some man other than your husband has lain with you, then the priest shall put the woman under the oath of the curse, and he shall say to the woman, The Lord make you a curse and an oath among your people, when the Lord makes your thigh rot and your belly swell. And may this water that causes the curse go into your stomach and make your belly swell and your thigh rot. Then the woman shall say, Amen, so be it. Then the priest shall write these curses in a book, and he shall scrape them off into the bitter water. And he shall make the woman drink the bitter water that brings a curse. And the water that brings a curse shall enter into her to become bitter. Then the priest shall take the grain offering of jealousy from the woman's hand, shall wave the offering before the Lord and bring it to the altar. And the priest shall take a handful of the offering as its memorial portion, burn it on the altar, and afterward make the woman drink the water. When he has made her drink the water, then it shall be, if she has defiled herself and behaved unfaithfully toward her husband, and that water that brings a curse will enter her and become bitter, and her belly will swell, and her thigh will rot, and the woman will become a curse among her people. But if the woman has not defiled herself and is clean... Then she shall be free and may conceive children. This is the law of jealousy when a wife, while under her husband's authority, goes astray and defiles herself. Or when the spirit of jealousy comes upon a man and he becomes jealous of his wife. Then he shall stand the woman before the Lord and the priest shall execute all this law upon her. Then the man shall be free from iniquity, but that woman shall bear her guilt. Wow. I think the application is, is obvious here. Women, do not cause your husbands to get jealous, okay? Don't do anything. I mean, no. I'm joking. <laughs> Listen, when you read about the spirit of jealousy in here, can I just say one thing? Don't try to spiritualize it. Um, this is not a demonic spirit or a demonic entity taking over a person to make them jealous. Sometimes I think people like to uh, blame the devil for what their, own, what their own doing in their own flesh. You know, it's like Flip Wilson, like the devil made me do it, you know. It's, it's easier to blame it on someone else. The word spirit in the Bible has different, uh, different uh, interpretations. It can mean a spirit or a demonic being like in this case or not in this case but a demonic being like some kind of a like a, a demon or you know the satan himself um, but it can also in the bible have the inter it can be interpreted as a human attitude and when you look at this passage of scripture the word doesn't carry the idea of something demonic taking over a person making them jealous that needs to be cast out but it's a human attitude that needs to be dealt with 
we know in the Old Testament, in Galatians chapter 5, this is not on. We know in Galatians chapter 5 that jealousy is a work of the flesh, right? Well, you don't cast out your flesh. In fact, you can't cast out your flesh. What do you do? You have to crucify it. You have to put it to death. And so this is, I think, speaking of not a demonic spirit, but a human attitude. And there's two situations that are described here. In verses 12 and 13 is the first situation. And that's if the wife has in fact committed adultery. In other words, she's guilty. And the husband's unaware, but he starts to think, hey, something's going on. And he starts to suspect that she's been unfaithful. Well, in that culture, a man could divorce a, a wife for just about any reason. And so she could, he could just say, well, that's right. I'm, I'm just divorcing you. I suspect that you've committed adultery. Well, she hasn't even had an opportunity to defend herself. Here, the issue, and, she, and, and this is a case where she, ha, if she is guilty, the issue of immorality still needs to be dealt with. It still needs to be addressed. The second situation is described in the second half of verse 14, and that's where the wife has not committed adultery. She's not guilty, but the husband's jealous, and he doesn't have a valid reason for being jealous. Again, he can't just divorce her. He can't just put her out on the street because he suspects that she's committed immorality, adultery against him. The issue of jealousy still needs to be resolved. You know, both immorality and jealousy are serious issues and they need to be resolved in a marriage. So in this case, the jealous husband, whether she's done it or not, is to bring his wife to the priest and put her under oath. And the priest takes some of the dust this is kind of gross, isn't it? Takes some of the dust that's on the floor of the tabernacle and puts it into some holy water. This is the first place that holy water is mentioned. I think it's the only place where holy water is mentioned, by the way. I'm guessing, and I don't know, but I'm guessing it's just water from the laver um, inside the tabernacle. So he's to take some dust from the tabernacle and, and, and put it into the water. And then he's to write the words of a curse in a book and then he's to scrape the ink off of that first layer of the, of the parchment that he's written on. And he's supposed to scrape that and add that into the holy water. So now you've got holy water that's inky and it's dusty. It looks like muddy, muddy stuff. Um, and so then she's supposed to drink it. And if she's innocent, the water will not harm her. If she's guilty, the water will become bitter and the curse is that her thigh will rot and her belly swell. Wow. Well, if you look at verse 28, I believe that what this is speaking of is a euphemism for fertility. If she's guilty, it'll be proven out by the Lord supernaturally, preventing her from having children from that point on. If she's innocent, as it says in verse 28, she's going to be free and can conceive children. It'll prove it out whether she was innocent or not. You see, if she was innocent, it protected her from divorcing her, wife, her, uh, divorcing her for any unfounded reason. It was a protection against the wife. And also, if she was innocent, that should once and for all settle the issue of the, of the jealousy. The, the husband shouldn't continue being jealous at that point because it's been resolved. And you might say, well, you know, that seems kind of like, you know, chauvinistic. You know, what about the husband? It's kind of like a double standard, it seems like. Uh, 
There's no double standard here, and I'll explain why. First of all, if you go through the Old Testament, when a man and a woman was caught committing adultery, both of them were to be stoned to death, both of them. So it's not just a one or the other. Um, but what the reason why this is in here, I think, for you and I, is that there's a spiritual picture being painted. And one of the things that I mentioned when we started the book of, of Numbers is that there's going to be uh, pictures, copies, the Bible calls them copies and shadows of heavenly things. And I think this passage as well is a copy and a shadow. It's a spiritual picture that's being painted for you and I. What's the picture? Well, I think God is the jealous husband in this picture. You might, oh, wait a minute, that sounds pretty bad. Not jealous in an evil way. See, God even himself tells us in the word that he's a jealous God. Now, you and I, we have this idea of what jealousy is. It's, you know, we have this human emotion. It's a, it's a work of the flesh. That's not what this, that's not what God has. He doesn't have the human emotion of jealousy. He's jealous for his bride. And, uh, you know, he doesn't want to share his bride with anybody else. And in the picture of the wife in here, it's a picture of you and I, the bride of Christ. God doesn't want to share you and I with anybody else. He doesn't want us to give our attention to the, and our affection to the things of the world. Why? Because he knows the devastation that it will cause you and I. And not only that, he has such a strong love for us. He doesn't want anything to get in the way of that relationship with us. Like I said, we are the bride in this picture. There's a little bit with this picture that's kind of an issue. The problem with this picture is we're the guilty bride. We have been unfaithful to the Lord. The curse does apply to you and I. We rightly deserve the curse of death that sin brings. But here's the picture. Jesus Christ drank the cup of the curse for you and I at Calvary. He absorbed the curse into his person. He died for your and my sins. That's why Romans 4 tells us when Abraham, you know, God gave Abraham a promise that he'd have a son. And Abraham was old and he didn't have any children. And in his old age, Abraham believed what God said. And the Bible says in, in Romans 4 verse 22, therefore it was accounted to him for righteousness. And then verse 23 of Romans 4, Paul says, Now it was not written for his sake alone that it was imputed to him, but also for us. It shall be imputed to us who believe in him, who raised up Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered up because of our offenses and was raised because of our justification. What shall be imputed to us? The Bible says righteousness by faith. When we believe that Jesus Christ died for your and my sins, he took that cup that we deserved and he drank it for us. And now we're no longer guilty. We're no longer affected by that curse. It's when we believe that Jesus died for our sins and rose up again, uh, rose again for our justification. That's the next step on the path to blessing. The first step was acknowledging that you are a sinner and confessing your sin to the Lord, and if you've harmed somebody else, to, to make restitution if it's possible. The next step on that path to blessing is, if you want to show the next slide, it's believing in your heart that Jesus is Lord. Romans 10, 8, and 9, but what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. 
That's the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. You know, if you've ever shared the gospel with someone and you've maybe you've shared these scriptures to them and maybe they say, oh yeah, yeah, I believe, you know, Jesus, you know, he was a historical person. He died on the cross. It's not just believing that Jesus is a historical person who died and even that he rose again, but it's believing what that means for you and I, what, what it means for him taking our punishment upon himself. You see, the cup of God's wrath, that cup that has the curse, it was taken away from us by Jesus Christ, our Lord. And that's what believing actually means, believing that, that he's taken that punishment for us. Well, let's go to chapter 6 here and look at this next step in the path. It's the law of the Nazarite, chapter 6, verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When either a man or a woman consecrates an offering to take the vow of a Nazarite to separate himself to the Lord, he shall separate himself from wine and similar drink. And he shall drink neither vinegar made from wine nor vinegar made from similar drink. Neither shall he drink any grape juice nor eat fresh grapes or raisins. All the days of his separation he shall eat nothing that is produced by the grapevine from seed to skin. All the days of the vow of his separation no razor shall come upon his head until the days are fulfilled for which he separate himself to the Lord. He shall be holy. Then he shall let the locks of the hair of his head grow. All the days that he separates himself to the Lord, he shall not go near a dead body. He shall not make for himself, un, he shall not make himself unclean, even for his mother, or, uh, father or his mother, for his brother or his sister when they die, because his separation to God is on his head. All the days of his separation, he shall be holy to the Lord. And if anyone dies very suddenly because uh, beside him and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day, he shall shave it. Then on the eighth day, he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse. And he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Now this is the law of the Nazarite. When the days of his separation are fulfilled, he shall be, he shall be brought to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest, uh, excuse me, and he shall present his offering to the Lord, one male lamb, uh, in its first year without blemish as a burnt offering, one ewe lamb in its first year without blemish as a sin offering, one ram without blemish as a peace offering, a basket of unleavened bread, cakes of fine flour mixed with oil, unleavened wafers anointed with oil, and their grain offering with their drink offerings. Then the priest shall bring them before the Lord and offer his sin offering and his burnt offering. And he shall offer the ram as a sacrifice of a peace offering to the Lord with the basket of unleavened bread. The priest shall also offer its grain offering and its drink offering. Then the Nazarite shall shave his consecrated head at the door of the tabernacle of meeting and shall take the head, excuse me, take the hair from his consecrated head. <laughs> he wants to put his head on the fire. Uh, and take the hair from his consecrated head and put it on the fire, which is under the sacrifice of the peace offering. 
And the priest shall take the boiled shoulder of the, of the ram, one unleavened cake from the basket, one unleavened wafer, and put them upon the hands of the Nazarite after he has shaved his consecrated hair. And the priest shall wave them as a wave offering before the Lord. They are holy for the priest, together with the breast of the wave offering and the thigh of the heave offering. After that, the Nazarite may drink wine. This is the law of the Nazarite who vows to the Lord the offering for his separation. And besides that, whatever else his hand is to provide, uh, whatever else his hand is able to provide, according to the vow which he takes, so he must do according to the law of his separation. The law concerning the vows of the Nazarite. You guys know the story of Samson. Samson was called by God from birth to be a Nazarite for the duration of his life. And he tragically rebelled against God's calling on his, on his life, and he paid a very, very heavy price because of that. His was a unique calling. He was called to be a judge of Israel. And what a judge of Israel was was basically a deliverer of Israel. As, as the nation of Israel would go into uh, uh, idolatry and they'd start sinning, uh, they would be basically taken over by their enemies. And when they finally acknowledged their sin and cried out to the Lord, God would send a deliverer, a judge. Samson was one of them. But Samson rebelled against that calling. Now, I think his case was kind of unique in that he was called from birth. But the Nazarite vow described here, it's a voluntary vow that a person makes. God never required it of a person. What was the vow? Well, it was to separate himself from wine and similar drink. In other words, vinegar, grape juice. He couldn't eat grapes, couldn't eat raisins. Basically, nothing that was, you know, grew from a grapevine that he could eat, could consume in any way. He also wouldn't, they wouldn't cut their hair, and then they also wouldn't go near a dead body, a dead body, not a dead buddy, <laughs> a dead body. Oh, it could be a dead buddy, I guess. Um, now, when, at first blush, sorry, I'm getting really tongue-twied. Okay. At first blush, when you read this, it's like, man, who would want to take a vow like that? All these things that you can't do. And that's what it sounds like. All these things that he can't do. But I want to draw, draw your attention to a couple things. Verse 2, he was to separate himself to the Lord. Verse 5, he separated himself to the Lord. Verse 6, separates himself to the Lord. Verse 7, separation to God. Verse 8, holy to the Lord. Verse 12, consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation. You get this idea, he's, he's doing all these things that he can't do, but he's really, he's separating from those things, but he's separating himself to the Lord. He's making a vow to the Lord. Now, what is, what's the picture? What's being painted here? What's, just, you know, what's the application for you and I? Well, the first thing he was to stay away from was wine or anything from the vine. Does that mean that wine's evil? No, because if you look at the completion of it, if, vow, if wine was evil, it's kind of interesting because at the completion of his vow, he could drink wine again. So the wine wasn't evil. In fact, if you look in the New Testament, Jesus' first miracle was to turn water to wine. In the Bible, when you go through the Bible, wine is really a picture of joy in the Bible. And I think the application, at least for you and I here, is where do you get your joy? 
Where do you find your joy? Is there your joy in the Lord or is it in some artificial worldly source? Where do you and I get our joy? The second thing that the Nazarite had to do was not to cut their hair during their vow. And that seems like, well, I just, where's the application in that? There's an interesting story in Daniel chapter 4. It's the story of King uh, Nebuchadnezzar. He was the king of Babylon. God had raised up Nebuchadnezzar to become a world ruler. He conquered the entire known world at that time. And in Daniel chapter 4, it describes a dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, and it bothered Nebuchadnezzar, and Daniel gave him, kind of reluctantly, gave him the interpretation of the dream. And the bottom line in that chapter there, in Daniel chapter 4, God was communicating to, to Nebuchadnezzar that God had given him dominion over all the nations of the world. God had given him that place of glory, that, that all that power, it came from God's hand. But God said, you're going to become prideful. And as a result, God would humble him. That's what the, the interpretation of that dream was. And sure enough, a few verses later in Daniel chapter 4, Nebuchadnezzar is standing there on probably the balcony of his palace looking out over his kingdom. And he says, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? And it says in verse 23 of, or verse 33 of uh, Daniel chapter 4, that very hour, the moment that he said that, that very hour, the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and ate grass like oxen. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Fascinating, fascinating story. Why do I bring that up? Well, I think for the Nazarite, having uncut hair was a sign of humility. You see, Nebuchadnezzar was, was humbled by basically his, his hair grew, his nails grew. He basically was like an animal at that point. It was very humbling for Nebuchadnezzar. And I think for the Nazarite, letting your hair grow was a sign of humility. You know, let me ask you this. Are, do you have a reputation? Are you all worried about your reputation? You know what Jesus did? The Bible says in Philippians, Jesus made himself of no reputation. And I think that's what's pictured here is humility. The third thing that the Nazarite was to do was not to come into contact with any dead body. And I think maybe, um, hopefully the picture is kind of obvious, that it's to stay away from things that are dead. For you and I, it's things that have no spiritual value. They don't, they don't, they don't do anything for us spiritually. Let me ask you this rhetorically. Is your time, energy, and attention consumed by things that profit little? Again, remember, these are voluntary things that God didn't command. It was voluntary. Although it could be your entire life, like in the case of, of Samson. His vow was for his entire life. Or it could be for a set time, as, we, as described in this passage of Scripture. You recall in, uh, in the book of Acts, Paul took a vow, the Nazarite vow, for a period of time. And it was a set time. 
Remember, we're talking about a path to blessing, right? That first step, if you want to have a blessing in your life from the Lord, it's acknowledging that you're a sinner. And then taking the next step is repenting and confessing that sin, and if necessary, making restitution. The next step, I think, was pictured in the, the, the passage about the, the, uh, the, the, the jealous husband. It's believing that Jesus died on the cross for your sins and that he rose again. And the Bible says if you do those things, you will be saved. In fact, that's the last slide I want to show you. Calling upon the name of the Lord, Romans 10, 10. From, uh, for with the heart one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. Verse 13, whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You want a blessing in your life. That's the first steps to take, to have a relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, I know people, believers, you probably know them too, that have taken those initial steps. They've acknowledged that they're sinners. They've believed that Jesus died on the cross for them, and they've confessed their sins, and they've put their faith and their trust in Christ, and the Bible says they are saved. But they still remain immature baby Christians. They never go beyond that. Again, they're still saved. But listen, there's a deeper, closer walk that the Lord has available for anybody, but he doesn't force it on us. It's a walk that you and I can make voluntarily. This is what I believe is when the Bible talks about making, uh, making Jesus the Lord of your life. In other words, every aspect of your life. You see that word Lord means supreme in authority. I remember sharing the gospel with a guy that I worked with a long time ago. And uh, this guy was, he was into drugs. He was in an immoral relationship with a woman. And, and I'm just sharing the gospel with a guy. And the guy said, hey, you don't need to tell me that. I've prayed the prayer. I'm, I'm going to heaven. And I'm like, wow, you are. Okay. You know, I, I can't argue with that if he did or not. But that's, he had made, if it's true, he had taken that step. But he had never gone beyond that. And you and I, we have that ability to go further, to have a deeper walk with the Lord. And I think that's what's being pictured here in the law of the Nazarite. Listen, is your joy found in your relationship with Jesus alone? If everything else is stripped away with you, but you just have that relationship with Jesus, do you still have joy in your life? Or is your joy based on how happy you are? Is your joy found in reading God's word? I mean, do you enjoy reading God's word? Do you enjoy praying, worshiping the Lord, serving the Lord? Does that bring joy to your heart? Do you have no reputation? Are you a humble person? You know, the picture here is those of those that their lives are hidden with Christ. They take no pride in themselves. And then finally, they stay away from dead things. In other words, their time energy and attention, it's focused on things of spiritual worth. And as a result, their lives are marked by spiritual fruit. What is spiritual fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Look, was there something kind of interesting in here? Verses 8 through 12, I want to reread that to you. All the days of his separation he shall be holy to the Lord, and if anyone dies very suddenly beside him, and he defiles his consecrated head, then he shall shave his head on the day of his cleansing. On the seventh day he shall shave it. 
Then on the eighth day he shall bring two turtle doves or two young pigeons to the priest to the door of the tabernacle of meeting. And the priest shall offer one as a sin offering and the other as a burnt offering and make atonement for him because he sinned in regard to the corpse and he shall sanctify his head that same day. He shall consecrate to the Lord the days of his separation and bring a male lamb in its first year as a trespass offering. But the former days shall be lost because his separation was defiled. Interesting. Here a Nazarite has taken a vow and he's doing all those things and maybe he's gone, you know, a week or two weeks into it or a month or a year, whatever, whatever the length of his vow was. He's, he's, he's going through that and then some, suddenly something happens and he defiles himself. Those days, those former days are lost. But he can reconsecrate himself once again and he can start all over again. That is such a beautiful picture for you and I that the Lord allows you and I, you know, we, we make a vow, Lord, I'm praying, trusting that everybody here in this room and those that are you listening, you've, you've taken that step and you've invited Jesus to become Lord of your life. But maybe you've done something, you, you've, you've blown it. You, you, you know, you got off the track, you've, you did something and, and I want to encourage you, man, yeah, those former days are lost, but guess what? You can start over fresh again. God is the God of second chances, third chances, fourth chances, five. It's God's grace is so wonderful. His compassions, they fail not. God is the God of second chances. And I think there's a beautiful picture here in the law of the Nazarite. So as we've been going through this morning, we've taken these different steps. I know uh, there was a time in my life when um, I had rededicated my life to the Lord. And, and prior to that, I had done some stuff that had hurt some people. And, I, and, I, and I, just, I just felt, man, I need to go back to these people, a couple different people at least, and say, hey, you know what? I, I'm sorry. I sinned against you. Would you forgive me? And, and they did. And I tried to make restitution as, as, as possible. You know, that was a very difficult thing to do. But the blessings was awesome. Restored relationship. The, the, no more guilt. It's like things are right again. And, and, and that can be the true for each one of us. So, you know, we've taken those steps. And if you've gone hiking, you know, there, some steps are difficult. Some steps are, are, are you know, they're not that hard. But you just, you just keep, you know, trudging forward. And then maybe if you're going up the path and you're winding and, you know, there's trees and stuff. There's things you have to move over, climb over stuff. But you get to the top or you get to an opening, the, like a meadow or something. You've ever done a hike in the, like the Redwood Forest or something? You know, you get a, there's a meadow. And it's like, man, I am so glad I took these steps. What a blessing to be here. That's what's being pictured here, I believe. There's no shortcut to reaching the blessings of God in your life. You only come to it through a saving relationship with Christ. And I want to encourage you with this verse, Psalm 84, verse 5. Blessed is the man whose strength is in you, whose heart is set on a pilgrimage. I'm on a path. I want to seek your blessing in my life, Lord. And I'm going to take every step that I need to take. And Lord, I'm going to just trust you and go forward. I want to encourage you in that this morning. Blessed you're blessed if your heart is on a pilgrimage. Lord, I want to grow in my relationship with you. I want to go deeper with you. And so just like 
the person, the hiker on the path going through the forest or climbing up the hill, they reach the summit or they reach the destination to the path. And here's the blessing, verse 22 to the 27. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, this is the way you shall bless the children of Israel. Say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. So they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. This is what the priest was to do whenever they had a ceremony, whenever they had a festival. The priest was to pronounce this blessing on the children of Israel. God wants his people to be blessed. He even tells the priests what to say. You know, it's kind of interesting. The very last thing that Jesus, our high priest, did on earth, the very last thing, it's described in Luke 24, verse 50. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. This is known as the Aaronic blessing, obviously after Aaron. It's also known as the triune blessing. Because you can see the trinity, the triune nature of God, even in these verses. Verse 24, the Lord bless you and keep you, is referring to God the Father. God's desire is to bless you. Psalm 84, no good thing will he withhold from those who walk uprightly. James 1 verse 17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. God the Father wants to bless you and me. Now, does that mean he wants to bless us with health, with wealth, with comfort? It could be. It honestly could be. But it might not be either. Listen, any loving father delights in blessing his children. Any loving father loves to bless his children, but he also knows what will be a blessing for his children and what might not be a blessing for his children. Even if the child doesn't know, the father knows. You know, we have kids and now we have grandkids. And one thing that I've learned in parenting is that, you, you know, the same four kids come from the same womb and they're all four different. <laughs> they're unique. And I know some things will bless a child, that same thing will not bless another child. I have a grandson, <clears throat> and uh, you know, I, go, I used to take him to the store, and he always wanted to go down the toy aisle. Opa, it's Dutch for grandpa. Opa, can you take me to the toy aisle? I'm like, sure, let's go down the Barbie aisle. He's like, ah, oh, I don't want to look at Barbies. <laughs> That's not blessing me. He wanted to look at the cars and the soldiers and everything, you know. Now, if my granddaughter was there, I would say, hey, Let's go down the car road. Nah, that doesn't bless me. Let's go look at the Barbies, you know. A father and a grandfather knows what will bless children. Your father knows what will bless you, even if you might not know. So it may be health. It may be wealth. It may be comfort, but it might not be. There, the blessing might be in going through something and learning to trust the Lord or seeing his provision in a difficult time. That's a blessing, too. In fact, that's a lot of times I think that's a stronger blessing. It sticks with you even longer when you see God, he's there through the difficult times. I met a man once who considered, considered it God's blessing that he was busted and thrown in jail. 
He said, I am so blessed that I got busted and I'm in jail. I'm going to say, well, that's pretty weird. He said, because it drew me into relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. God got a hold of his heart at that point, and it would transformed his heart. And so for him, it was a blessing. Now, for someone else, he goes, that's not a blessing. But for him, it was a blessing. God wants to bless you, and he wants to bless me. And it says, the Lord bless you and keep you. Keep means to watch, to preserve, and to guard. Psalm 121, verses 4 through 7. Behold, he who keeps Israel shall neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade at your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day nor the moon by night. The Lord shall preserve you from all evil. He shall preserve your soul. Jude 1.24, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. God wants to bless you and keep you. Verse 25, the Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. This is referring to God the Son. What does it mean to have a face shine upon you? To see someone's face meant that they were physically in your presence. In other words, may the, this is what the blessing is. May the Lord reveal himself to you. And I want to encourage those of you that have maybe wandered or strayed in your relationship with the Lord. Hebrews 11.6 says he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. If, you are, if you're like, man, Lord, I, I want to know you more. I want to see you more, Lord. I, I want to experience more of you in your life. You know, God, he knows your heart, and he's a rewarder, the Bible says, of those who diligently seek him. Paul wrote this in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 6, For it is the God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. You see, if you want to see and know God, it's in the face of Jesus. It's looking to Jesus. Hebrews 1 says he's the brightness of the Father's glory and the express image of his person. You want to know God? Get to know Jesus. So may the, uh, <clears throat> let me read it. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. There's a verse in John that I love. John 1 verse 17. For the law was given through, Mo through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Finally, we get to verse 26. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. And this is referring to God, the Holy Spirit. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you. Simply put, may the Lord smile on you. What a blessing. May God just smile on you, smile at you. You see, God's pleased with us, and it's not because of anything you and I have done. It's because he sees Jesus Christ in us. Well, how do we know that God's pleased with us? The Bible says by the Holy Spirit dwelling in us. Romans 5, 5. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Romans 15, verse 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit that brings peace into your and my life. That's why he's known as the comforter. He's there to comfort you.
to guide you. Finally, verse 27, so they shall put my name on the children of Israel and I will bless them. And this speaks of the blessing of identification. The blessing of identification. Psalm 100, verse 3. Know that, the Lord, know that the Lord, he is God. It is he who has made us and not we ourselves. We are his sheep. Uh, we are his people, excuse me, and the sheep of his pasture. It's God's heart to have that close relationship with each and every one of us. It's God's heart to bless us, but that blessing only comes through a relationship with Jesus Christ. And if you want more of a blessing of God in your life, make him the Lord of your life. Walk deeper with him. Seek him. He'll reward you. He'll let you find him, and you will grow in your relationship, and you will be blessed. Let's stand. Let's go, Lord, in prayer, and I'll have the worship team come on up. Heavenly Father, I thank you for this morning. Lord, I thank you for each and every person here in the sanctuary. Lord, I thank you for each and every person that's hearing the sound of my voice or watching it on the, on the, on the uh, computer. Lord, we all desire blessings in our life. Lord, I thank you that it's possible to be blessed. Lord, you've provided a way for us to be blessed through a relationship with Jesus Christ, your son. Lord, thank you for sending your son to die on the cross for us. And Jesus, we thank you for loving us enough to be willing to die, to be obedient to the Father, even in death. And we thank you that you've not left us as orphans, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell inside of us, to reassure us of our relationship with you to give us that peace. And Lord, there's so much uh, around us that would seek to steal our joy and to steal our peace, but you've given us your Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to fill us with your peace and to guard our hearts. And Lord, I thank you for that blessing. Lord, I pray for each and every person, Lord, that they would genuinely seek to know you more. Lord, to walk closer with you, to have that deeper relationship with you, Lord. We thank you that you've provided a way for us to do that. We love you, Lord. We bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you remain standing and we'll just do the last uh, worship song.